the giant Hey guys, welcome to the show. I'm Ram Castillo, and in this podcast, I'm bringing to you top experts from various industries worldwide to learn from their success and to help us become better designers, creatives, and giant thinkers. Hey Giants, welcome to episode number 35. As I'm recording and releasing this, I'm actually in California, well and truly settled into my two-month USA speaking tour with a side trip to Mexico as well. But for the most part, I'll be speaking in various cities from the West Coast to the East and many places in between. All part of launching my second book, How to Get a Mentor as a Designer Guaranteed. The full list of my tour can be seen on gettingamentor.com. Click the events page, and if I'm visiting your city or am nearby, please come along. I'd really love to see you at one of my events. Now, for those of you that were at the annual AIGA conference hosted at the Mirage in Las Vegas, congratulations for attending, investing your time, and making the event such a huge success. It was my first time at an AIGA conference, and I'm sure for those of you that attended uh, can all agree that it was buzzing with energy and inspiration. And for those that came along to my three-hour workshop uh, that I delivered there titled Win the Job You Want, thank you for your curiosity and engagement. It will be an event I will always remember. Alrighty, let's get this episode underway. Our guest is the Chief Creative Officer of Squarespace and has been there for almost four years. Prior to that, he's held creative director leadership positions at TBWA, Whedon and Kennedy, and AKQA. If I read his long list of accolades and awards, we'd be here for hours, but his recognition spans broad and deep from Cannes to One Show, D&AD, and Webby. What I'm sure you'll all appreciate is that his passion lies in telling compelling stories at the intersection of product, design, and marketing. He's masterminded two Super Bowl commercials, led the successful launches of Squarespace Logo and Squarespace 7, and worked with clients including Nike, Nokia, Microsoft, and Xbox. Some of the topics we spoke about include how to stand out when showing your portfolio, what it really is to be a creative director, how we can present and sell our ideas better, and his advice for getting in touch with creative directors. Now, before we dive into it, I want you to picture racing against the clock to wrap up three projects, prepping for a meeting later in the afternoon, or while trying to tackle a mountain of paperwork. Welcome to life as a freelancer. It's challenging, but I personally believe that the rewards are worth it. As we know, the growth and speed of the internet has created endless possibilities and opportunities for the self-employed. To meet this need, I'm excited to let you know that FreshBooks has recently announced the launch of an all-new and improved version of their cloud accounting software. It's been redesigned from the ground up and custom-built for exactly the way you and I work. When it comes to the invoicing and accounting side of things, I've found it the simplest way to be more productive, organized, and the most efficient way to get paid quickly. The all-new FreshBooks is packed full of powerful features, including the ability to create and send professional-looking invoices in less than 30 seconds, set up online payments with just a couple of clicks, and get paid up to four days faster, and view when your client has seen your invoice to put an end to the guessing games. 
FreshBooks is offering a 30-day unrestricted free trial to all you Giant Thinkers listeners. To claim it, just go to freshbooks.com slash giant and enter Giant Thinkers in the How Did You Hear About Us section. Now, with all that said, I am so excited to present the super enlightening and honest David Lee. David Lee, welcome to the Giant Thinkers podcast, mate. I have a feeling this is going to be one popular episode. Now, that's that's just a hunch. <laughs> Great to be here. Thank you, David, for uh, for taking the time uh, for an icebreaker question, which is, uh, I always give my guests uh, one icebreaker question. Yours is nothing trivial, but uh, if the world was wiped out of every single type of fruit forever, except one, what fruit would you want saved? So the funny thing is I've had a variant of this this type of question before, and um, I've actually thought about this. It would definitely be an avocado. An avocado. And, yeah, okay. most people think of it as a vegetable, but it's actually not. It's false. It's, it's an actual fruit. And the beauty of it is that it can be served uh, savory. It can be served sweet. It's highly flexible and malleable, amazingly nutritious. I like that. I like that. Yeah. I, um, I have had avocado in many different ways. I have had it in a way that my mom has taught me. And then when I tried it, uh, when I was a kid and showed my friends, they thought I was weird. I have it with milk and honey and a bit of sugar. That sounds delicious. So David, where would you say your expertise lies? Yeah, I've had, I've had um, the amazing opportunity to wear many hats in my career so far. But I think if I had to boil it down to one thing is, you know, I call myself a designer. I studied as a graphic designer. Um, I began my career as a, as a graphic designer. But, you know, through the, the moment where I actually started to go into my professional career was with the advent of the, the internet and the web as a creative medium. So I had a very... Um, two-pronged approach to my career where um, I served as a designer, both doing like web interfaces and doing some more traditional graphic design and branding projects. So um, this eventually led to me falling into a career in advertising where, you know, I always use design as a fundamental background and a differentiator, even kind of working on integrated kind of creative campaigns. And, you know, finally, I ended up kind of coming full circle and starting a product development company that um, you know, and focusing a little bit more on product design. So that kind of all coalesced into uh, me joining Squarespace. Um, yeah. Awesome. So uh, David, actually, when you said fundamentally you're a designer and I love the, the simplicity of that, but you know, the term design and designer is actually uh, evolving and, and quite uh, broad nowadays. Uh, how do you describe um, being a designer? Yeah, I think designer for me is, is, is quite simple. Like it's, you're, you're there to solve like a tangible problem, right? And I think designers get a little bit of a bad rap where uh, we get pigeonholed as kind of like aesthetic, like visual artists. Um, when you're in an agency construct, it's usually kind of succumbed into like a studio environment where it's separated off from like a creative the creative kind of group. And I think what you're seeing right now is that design has kind of made a little bit of an emergence. And 
I think the the fact that it's been something that has been a, like a malleable term and um, something that's constantly changing, I don't actually see that as a bad thing. But I think if you had to really coalesce it back to like a foundational point, it's really about solving like a tangible problem. And I think anyone can call themselves a designer. There's obviously certain technical and, and uh, theoretical things that you have to learn. But I don't think designers are, are just for people who, you know, paint by number and paint pretty pictures. I think it's something that anyone um, can be good at if they apply their thinking to it. Yeah, totally agree with that. So, David, can you tell us about your childhood? You know, how did you grow up? You know, as you said, you're now at uh, Squarespace as uh, the chief creative officer. But looking at your long list of accolades from winning multiple awards and and being shortlisted and and a finalist for for some of the most well known, in, including Cannes, DND, uh, Webby, One Show, the list goes on. Um, but Prior to Squarespace, you were actually at TBWA. Prior to that, you were at Whedon and Kennedy, and then prior to that, you were at AKQA. So, you know these are these are huge um, companies that uh, produced exceptional work. You know, how did it all? If we if we go all the way back to to your childhood, what, what was that like for you? Well, I didn't know that I would be doing this in my childhood. Um, <laughs> Uh, I actually grew up, uh, the funny thing, my, my parents are of South Korean, um, and but I was actually born and raised in a small suburb uh, off of Quebec City, which is the heartland of, of French Canada. And I spent most of my childhood and adolescent years growing up in Montreal. And for those who may not know a lot about Montreal, it's such a fascinating and unique city. It's a very creative and artistic city with, a, with, a, with just a really fantastic energy. And it's so culturally different to any city in North America where people are perfectly fluent in French and English uh, for the most part as a very European backdrop and lovely food and architecture. But another hidden gem about Montreal is that it has some of the most progressive graphic design, I would say, in the world. And there's a, it's like a hidden uh, surplus of talent that no one knows about. You have some of the most thoughtful designers and some of the some really good schools that have fantastic design curriculums, and you know, unfortunately, despite having all that in front of me, I decided to to go to school in in the in the U.S. But I kind of look back at that almost as a as a missed opportunity not to um, actually start my um, you know my my secondary education in, in back home in Montreal. But it's, de- it's definitely some place that I call home and where. Um, a large part of the DNA of, of who I am today is is carved out from that upbringing. But I had a travel itch very early, uh, uh, ever since I was an adolescent, and part of me wanted to travel the world. So a big part of what I've done is try and um, pick and choose different cities or different companies that I um, that I really wanted to work at, and use that as a, as an opportunity to. Not only work there and you know grow as a as a designer and as a, as a creative, but use it as an opportunity to really get into the fabric of the city and learn a lot um, about these different uh, uh, different cities all over the world. So, yeah, amazing. Uh, where did you study exactly, and what did you take up after high school? Yeah, so I um, after high school, well. Quebec's a little bit different where you have something called CJEP, which is a little bit like pre-college where you're actually, high school finishes at around 
grade 11. And then you're actually able to choose uh, like a two-year major. And I decided to go into, um, uh, oh God, it's been, I'm so old. I don't even remember what it was. <laughs> what it was. Creative something, to be right. completely fair. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, I was someone who thought I was going to be a very well-known artist. I thought I was uh, uh, very talented and I applied to all these design schools in, in, uh, in North America. And I ended up going to a school uh, in a very small town in Rhode Island called the Rhode Island School of Design, which for people listening um, may or may not know, but it, it turned out that it was considered one of the top three schools in the U.S. for design, maybe actually even uh, in the world. And it was a real shock that I even got in. And um, so I ended up going there. And after my two years in, in, in CGEP in, in Montreal, and I ended up going into pure like graphic design. And it was a very, very amazing, eye-opening experience to be surrounded by um, teachers who were also professional designers um, students from all around the world. And the, the curriculum was very, very different than what I was used to. It wasn't, you weren't, you weren't really being taught how to design per se, or you weren't being taught the tools. Uh, it's not like you were learning software or anything like that. Um, you were, you're being taught how to think and to look at how you solve like design problems um, th- through the thinking kind of part of it. And it was a very unique thing for me to, to be put in that environment. Um, RISD was, a very, was very inspired by the Bauhaus. So it was a very theoretical uh, design school. And I, uh, I, I enjoyed the time when I was over there. Yeah. Tell us a bit more about the uh, design thinking side of things. Yeah, I think it's... Again, going back into like, I think designers get a little bit of a bad rap for being visual artists or, um, you know, people who, who, who paint pretty pictures. And it's really not actually about that at all. Uh, it's not about pretty wallpaper. It's about trying to solve real tangible problems. And those might be business problems. Those might be strategic problems. But they're basically using design as a vessel uh, to solve a, a problem through a, through a certain lens and then execute upon it. So... It was really interesting to to have to learn how to think and use a different part of your brain that you weren't actually used to uh, in the past. Yeah, are there any projects that stand out? Perhaps. God, it was so such a long time ago, and you're making me feel very <laughs> old. Um, I think there was one thing that um, was an eye opener for me, and it wasn't necessarily a project. But it was a class where I got a critique from a teacher. It was one of the first classes that I took when I went to RISD. And it was a, it was a drawing class, funnily enough. And I actually thought I was a, a very decent to great artist. And I could draw with the best of them. And uh, I was actually quite confident in that skill. And I remember we were doing still life drawing. And uh, I, I thought I had made a very beautiful representation of this still life and we had this group critique and you know the professor then came to me and uh, it was time for my critique and he basically started to applaud me for for the work that i had done and you know i had this smug look on my face perhaps i don't remember exactly but i also was feeling very confident but he basically told me something that i remember very clearly he said this is so beautiful 
it is so realistic. It's almost like a photograph. And I, I basically said, I know. <laughs> and he basically said, this is, it's so realistic that I, I feel like you should go into photography. You know, this is, this is, this is amazing, but this is not, this is not drawing. And I remember it very clearly, this feeling in your gut when you have uh, one of your teachers, one of the first classes you ever, you're ever taking at this prestigious design school. And um, I remember the feeling that I had there. And I remember the feeling um, the next day, uh, walking into class with the tail uh, between my legs. And then he, he quietly came up to me and said, you know, drawing is not about trying to represent what people, um, how people see it uh, normally. It's about, you know, it's about gestures. It's, it's about finding the soul of what you're, what you're looking at. And it's your, you have to find your own unique voice and your, your own unique uh, way of bringing that out into the world. And it's not about realism, you know, it's about finding the, the, the expression and the, the, the soul of what, what the subject matter is. And I said, I get that. Um, it's really hard for me to unpack and untrain myself for these years of doing it a certain way. And he, he basically made me, uh, for the remainder of the class, draw with my off hand. Mm. So I actually had to draw with my left hand for the, for the rest of the class. And it was really interesting because... Yeah, I was so uncomfortable with it. I was always very controlled. I knew exactly what I wanted to do and how I would execute it. And he got me out of my comfort zone completely. And uh, do I think I'm a better uh, draft, draftsman right now because of that? Probably not. Do I think I'm the best person to draw still life in charcoal? Definitely not. But I think the the learning from that situation has actually stuck with me for a very long time where you have to to sometimes find the solution, get yourself out of your comfort zone, put yourself in a situation that you've never done before and use that as an opportunity to find like a unique voice and a unique way of expressing an idea to the world. Mm. Yeah, that's really powerful. So while we're on the topic of studying design, David, uh, do you think design students can already be doing something to help them increase their chances of employment? Mm. yeah is there anything that comes to mind perhaps um you know the question i get a lot is how can i stand out or get the edge um after i leave or graduate um is there anything that students can be doing now perhaps absolutely you know i'm going to do a complete 180 on the story that i that i just told you and go for it look at it through the other side of the coin I think as much as I learned how to think and um, uh, look at problem solving differently when, when I was at RISD, I, I remember the feeling of when I was um, applying for jobs right out of school and how unprepared I actually felt um, in terms of like working on real world problems and real tangible uh, projects that had clients and that had um, feedback loops and presentations and it, it dawned on me that uh, working professionally was very, very different in school. So, you know, and I did my share of internships, but what I would really kind of tell people to do if they are in a school, you should try and take as many internships as possible, way more than, than I did, and to put yourself in real world uh, situations because 
what you do at school isn't necessarily going to be the same type of problem solving, at least not at a junior level when you're getting out of school. So um, it, it, it's very different. And it, it could be a little bit daunting if you're not prepared for the reality of that situation. Um, so I think internships are a great way for you to prepare um, yourself. It's also a great way to get a portfolio of work that isn't school work, which is always something that, um, at least when I'm looking at portfolios, even if they're right out of school, it is always surprising if you're a design student that there isn't work um, based on your certain passion, um, your certain passions you might have, whether it's music, it's film, it's fashion, like it, it could be anything. But if you really care about design, you'll be going out of your way, um, doing projects for pro bono things for people just to kind of establish like a presence and build like a portfolio outside of the schoolwork. So I always find it a little bit odd when you look at portfolios and it just straight up looks like stuff that came out of a, a curriculum at school. So uh, if there's any words of wisdom there, I think doing real work, uh, putting yourself out there and having to actually deal with real clients, even if they're your friends or or, or your family or people you know, but getting used to um, having to deal with people, <laughs> which is not always uh, obvious when you're a designer, kind of like looking two inches in front of your face. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that, especially the bit about... Um, just having more exposure to to real jobs and the idea that you don't have to just tackle the minimum uh, requirement of an internship as, as such. It's really volunteering yourself in an environment that is truly fast paced. It is uh, working with real budgets and real people, right? So um, I, I really second that advice as well. Um, let's talk about the P word, that portfolio word. Um, I'd love to, uh, to go through a few of your fundamentals to putting together a portfolio that really stands out. You know, um, you know, the first thing that comes to mind is, of course, shooting work um, that is at least mocked up um, to give the impression that it is a living, breathing um, sort of object. Um, what have you got in mind um, that are fundamentals to putting a portfolio together? So I think what you mentioned is, is, is very important. I think it's always good to uh, contextualize and put thing, place things in situations so that it becomes like a real tangible project. Um, I, I like to take the benefit of the doubt that if you're a designer you should be able to visually articulate your portfolio. I think that's your job. You know, if you, and if you can't, if you can't do that, um, and this is not trying to be harsh, but it, it could be that this is not the right thing like for you. Uh, so for me, a lot of that is a little bit table stakes. I think what I look for in a designer is that obviously you have to have great ideas executed brilliantly, but more than anything, I like when people explain their work uh, verbally and can really explain what the problems of the project was and more importantly, what their part in the project was. And the reason why I say this is that it's really easy to put up images of beautiful work, but I want to know how you think uh, about things. I want to know if you can actually articulate yourself what the actual solution was. And for me, it's a signal that if you're not able to verbally articulate what the solution was, that you may not actually understand what you were going into in that project. And it's hard for designers. I had problems too. 
where I wasn't able to articulate verbally um, what exactly the solution was. And I think a lot of times you end up doing pretty things um, for the sake of doing pretty things. But I always look for um, the individuals in their portfolios where they can simply and elegantly express um, what the problem was, what the solution was, because I've seen enough portfolios where, uh, especially on bigger projects, where a person is probably one name of 20 different people that worked on it. And I really enjoy um, seeing people who get really, really laser focused on what their contribution was, because for me, it's a sign of confidence and not overstepping their boundaries and taking credit for things that may not have been his or hers. Because you're always, you're going to find out at the end of the day, if you're that person, right? One way or the other. And I enjoy people who are very confident uh, in telling the viewer of their work what his or her place actually was in the project. Yeah, I think that's a really important thing to highlight, uh, especially in a day and age where if you are working for a design studio or, or a company, it's very unlikely that it it's especially if they're large projects that it's just going to be a one man band type of um, gig. And um, I, I think by highlighting your contribution, um, it's, it's actually um, showing that this is what I've done. This is the part that I've played, but you're very much highlighting the area of growth that, um, that, you know, you'd like to move into. And that's not a bad thing. I think there's a lot of pressure to come up with the big idea when in fact um, employers are not necessarily looking for, um, you know, the the brain um, of of the project in every single employee. You know, sometimes um, we might feel that we need to be that guy, but if you're coming out of design school, um, it's not necessarily something that all design students are going to uh, have under their belt. They might have other, I guess, skill sets that um, the project actually needs as equally um, as important. Um, so when we look at, um, I guess, um, personal branding and an online presence, which is what an online portfolio really caters for um, quite well. Uh, do you have any other staple items that you feel should be um, delivering, uh, that students should be delivering upon besides the portfolio? Is there any other components to to building a brand presence that all students should, should start doing now? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, the for for a designer or a creative persona, the portfolio is always going to be um, the the home base, you know, of the work. And you know, obviously at Squarespace, we know a little thing or two about um, providing a platform to to showcase work. But you know what? We we live in very different times today. And you know, I always use this kind of explanation: like when you're going to meet someone today you're not actually going to meet them for the first time in a physical self. You're definitely going to be meeting them online for the first time. And it's always interesting when you realize that your legacy might be based on a search result in Google, <laughs> right? And your portfolio and your work, it should be up there because that's the way that you can curate like the exact representation of who you are and, and 
and what you want to be and how you want to be expressed. It's it's a, it's a pivotal part of, of of any kind of a creative person, and it's also a pivotal part of the strategy of Squarespace as well. But it's it's actually also beyond like the portfolio. There, like you're going to be gauged on every piece of content and every piece of writing that you've ever done. You might have images in Google that you want to go away. And I think people need to be cognizant that that's the world that we live in, right? It's you're going to be judged on every single thing that you put out to the world. And it's, uh, it makes it to be a little bit daunting. Uh, it might be a little bit stressful, but it's, um, it's the new way of, you know, representing yourself and your personal or your, or your business brand. You know, when I look at portfolios, I will also, if they're not linked to it, I definitely will search for that person's Instagram feed. Um, and it's always interesting to see, you know, are they using the same art directional eye? Is everything posted through a particular lens? Like, what is the cadence to how they're posting? What is the subject matter of their like of what they're posting? Does it represent the the type of work that this person showcasing on their portfolio? It's always amazing to see uh, either a people who have a very consistent kind of look and feel and a, and a brand to everything that they put out. Versus people who have a completely Frankenstein online presence, which feels like it's just been stitched together with bubblegum and wrapping tape. And I'm not saying either or is better, but it's, it's a fascinating way to get to know a little bit about someone by um, kind of meandering and searching for other places where um, this person might actually be. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought up the Instagram uh, account or, or the Instagram presence, because um, funnily enough, I I just started a new Instagram account uh, in addition to my own, but uh, I, I've called it Giant Designers and trying to curate the work of emerging designers. And what I found was after um, strolling through hashtags of, you know, uh, student projects or hashtag design student, um, what I was seeing was work that was work in progress work. And it's interesting to see two things um, that when I looked at the websites, they were so polished, um, which is great. And it was nice to see them use the their Instagram feed as the design thinking part of it. And so it kind of complemented their polished work, whether it was on Behance or their Squarespace site or whatever they had online as their home base for their portfolio. Um, but then there was a, a good bunch of people where I stumbled across them on Behance. And when I wanted to look at their Instagram account, they didn't have one, mm-hmm. um, which was interesting. Um, and then there was others with a very strong online presence of having not only Instagram accounts, but they had blogs and they were designing and writing. um, Sorry, they were writing about their design um, influences and observations and reflections. Some had YouTube videos and some had Snapchat accounts and, um, you know, they were doing live streams on Periscope or, or Facebook. So I think that to me um, really says that they're passionate about design rather than writing the words, I'm passionate. Absolutely. I think, I think you raise like a very, very good point. Um, I, like the, I like seeing the work in progress sometimes more than I do the actual finished product. Get a lot more of the, 
the the nuances of the thinking sometimes when you actually unveil what's under the what's under the hood um, in earlier kind of nascent form ideas. I think one other thing which I look for when when I look at you know emerging designers or people that we might want to hire is is are they culturally uh, adept you know have they have they seen the world are they um, like who, who are they you know like what are their interests and i think one of the things maybe because I, I i had the travel itch and i spent the majority of my um not only career but my time traveling the world and living in three different continents i i can tell you for sure that i would not be the person that i am unless i actually um did all of this travel you know the conversations you have, the people you meet, the sounds you hear, all these different things, like the art you see in certain exhibitions that are only there in like Berlin or et cetera. I think this says a lot when you when you have someone who is curious, is fascinated about the world, and is using that as an opportunity to absorb as much creative juice as possible. And I always find it weird to um, meet people who have, you know, never left the United States or even their their hometown, like I, I always found that very odd, and I think it's really interesting when you see different designers, creative personas who who have actually made the effort to go out and to absorb things from the world. So I, I think that's a really it's a really important thing for any creative person. Yeah, I think that would be a huge thing for me as well. When um, when asked that question around um, again, you know, how, how do you how do you stand out a bit more? It really is about um, raising your standard and and the standard can't be raised if you haven't been exposed to other things beyond your local proximity, um, which is hugely um, uh, an attribute that traveling um, will, will expose you um, to um, in greater depths. Um, when we look at the... Uh, hiring criteria for um for designers um from uh roles such as yourself david creative directors or you know chief creative um officers are there any myths you can bust or misconceptions that listeners may have about what creative directors are really looking for when hiring well i can, I can only speak on on my behalf i'm i'm not gonna speak on behalf of other creative directors around the world. I think sure. one of the biggest myths might be actually awards. And the fact that it, it might be a little bit of a relic of the of the advertising kind of world. But I remember when I was much younger and trying to carve my own, you know, my own path in this world, there was a huge amount of pressure um, for myself and other young creatives and designers to win all these awards. And, you know, when it, it almost felt like at a certain point, it became more of the focus and actually solving the real problems for your, for your client. And don't get me wrong. Like I, I love being accoladed and for doing great work. And I think everyone should. And, you know, obviously I've won my fair share of awards in the past and, you know, it's made me very content to, to do so, but maybe, Perhaps because I'm on the brand side now and I'm looking at things through through a different lens uh, and maybe because our company doesn't really put a primary focus on on winning awards it's not it's just not where our energy is spent that um, it's not necessarily the number one thing that I look for 
uh, in a candidate for someone to work at a, at a company like Squarespace. And that was very different when I worked in an advertising uh, in an agency where that seems to be the only way that you can actually move up the ladder is to show that you've won uh, a Ken Lion or a DNAD pencil, uh, et cetera. And I think all those organizations are fantastic and there's actually genuinely amazing work that's being accoladed there. But um, yeah, I, I, think, I think that's one of the bigger myths. It may not be the case if, you, if you're applying to an advertising agency, but um, at least for us at Squarespace, I think we put more of a priority on other, on other attributes of a, of a designer. Mm, yeah, I think that's really, uh, really something that, that many people can connect with. Um, the, the pressure of winning an award versus um, making sure that primarily the, the, the focus is solving the problem. Um, now, David, I love this recommendation from one of your old colleagues, uh, Clemens Brandt, and I've, I've taken this from your, from your LinkedIn, but he's uh, the Director of Digital Operations at BBDO at the moment. And this, this appears on your LinkedIn when he wrote this about you. David gives excellent creative steer with much love for the detail, but at the same time, he understands the client's business problems. So David, in your experience, how do, you, how do we combine excellent creative thinking with the overall bigger picture when tackling a brief? Do you have an example that comes to mind? I don't know if I have a particular example, but I can tell you that being a creative director is much more than what it sounds like it's supposed to be. It's it's really more about how to push things when it needs to be pushed, but at the same time knowing when you actually have to dial it back. You know, like you're always constantly fighting to make the best work possible, but you know, you're always asking for more time or you're always trying to get into these little unfinished details that probably only you can see and no one else even cares about. But, you know, that's the creative process. And everyone who really cares about the work and the craft is always going to try and push this to to the nth degree. But I think it's also your job as a creative director to understand the bigger picture. And in order to do that, you, you do have to look at things holistically and know when it's the right time to stop or even go back to the drawing board. And it's you know, everyone has to understand that you're trying to solve like a bigger, bigger problem. It's bigger than you. It's bigger than your team. It's bigger than your agency or your company. And it's really easy to be too close to the work where you lose track of the bigger mission and you have to be able to step away and, and, and look at this from like from a distance. You know, like it's, while I don't have like a particular example that comes to mind, I think it's, you only realize that through experience that it, becomes an innate ability to kind of like suss out when is the time to push and when is the time to stop. And um, I'm a firm believer in creativity and constraints. I feel that if you're a creative person that isn't given certain variables like time, like deadlines or budget, cost, etc. If you're not given that, then creative people to, to go around in circles until like forever. And so I actually embrace these constraints, uh, whether it's money, whether it's uh, deadlines, because I, I think it actually forces you to make certain decisions and you kind of go with your gut on certain things. And I think more often than not, um, it leads to really great things. Yeah, it uh, almost reminds me, this just came to my head, but uh, the the aspect of putting on a restraint on something um, can seemingly at first perhaps you know, lean towards it, um, 
closing, uh, you know, minimizing the the door of opportunity when in fact it can it can actually enhance it in 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 many cases. Um, I remember one time we had a client. This is when I was a, a junior, um, and the shop that they were opening had these beautiful large windows, and they were just going to cover it up with newspaper for a good two to three months as they were rebranding and renovating the shop. And um, this was a high-end bathroom appliance and, you know, bathroom renovating type of store. And they had no budget already from the rebrand. But, um, I mean, the thought came to mind was just to have black and white, um, beautiful typography and, and, changing the uh using the windows basically as a as a canvas uh, almost like a billboard um with super low cost black and white printouts and what came to be was just this sort of um closed door of um of these um taped up onto the window um quotes of of um what was to come um what they were going to expect so there, there is certainly opportunity in restraints for sure. And I think um, that alludes to the reality that it is a business, that there are budgets and time constraints. Um, so I'm glad that you you uh, really diluted it down to, to those things. Uh, David, what do you feel is the difference between someone with good presentation skills versus someone with great presentation skills? You know, how can we present or sell our ideas better? That's a great question because I think it's very rare that you find a great presenter. It's a it's a pretty amazing skill and attribute to have. And I'm not too sure if it's innate or if it's something learned. And it's definitely something that I'm always trying to get better at every day because it's become such an important part of uh, everything that we do. Um, I think I think a good presenter is is at least for me is going to always be personable, but still maintain a certain sense of professionalism. You know, I think it's human nature to be very nervous in any public speaking situation, but good presenters will always keep calm and collective. Uh, I think it would be a shame if you didn't have a little glimpse of your personality, kind of get out into the world. And the last thing we need is uh, a prefabricated sounding presentation or pitch. You know, I've heard my share of them. I've probably given out my share of them. And there's nothing worse than um, hearing something and then be looking at your phone to see like what's what's next. So, I think another thing about being a good presenter, which I've you know had to learn um, just by experience, is that you have to know the material. You have to know what you're going to say before you go up there. I think a lot of a lot of times I used to wing it and just be very spontaneous and confident that you know what I would say would actually make any sense. And more often than not. I think people probably looked at me and said, that doesn't make any sense at all. So I had to learn by actually doing and like making mistakes. And I probably make them still to this day. I might actually be making them uh, right now. But I think you need to know the material. You need to understand what the framework of your presentation or your pitch actually is. You need to know what your talking points are. But you should never be reading from a slide. You should never be reading from like what your notes are. That's just there to formulate like a blueprint and a narrative to what, what you're going to say. But uh, hopefully you're not reading from cards. Uh, I think that's the last thing that people need. Mm. Um, I think great though, a great present, a great presenter. I think they're few and far between. 
uh, to be completely fair. And I think you have to have an uncanny knack uh, to boil things down to the purely like the simplest, simplest form. And the really great presenters can do that, but they also say it in the fewest amount of words possible. And it's really easy for people to sound smart and bloviate and use really big words and abstract concepts that you think people might, um, it might come off that you're more, more interesting or more thoughtful than you actually are. But I think the, the best presenters I've ever seen have this ability to communicate very, very hard concepts into the simplest terms that anyone can understand. And that's a very, very uh, difficult thing to do. And I think there's very few people um, who are good at that. And I think it's just about practice. And it's just about um, really, really trying to coalesce things down to its simplest form without sounding um, like a robot. Mm, Yeah, totally agree with that. Uh, David, when it comes to all these things we've spoken about uh, of, of, you know, making sure that uh, you're you're living a life as a designer, you're um, branding yourself as such, you've got a strong portfolio, you're getting experience, all these things. When we put all those pieces together, there is that little bridge between, okay, how do we get, even get in touch with someone like you? Um, you know, a lot of emerging designers, I'm sure, are thinking, you know, creative directors in general, um, it's not like the jobs that um, that are available are publicly advertised. In fact, um, there's this been many statistics that have proven that 80% of jobs available are not um, advertised. And so the question is, how how do you feel people, um, whether they've just uh, graduated or are maybe looking to step things up in their career, how would they best get in touch with you or get their portfolio in front of you? Um, you know, a lot of my creative director friends get 300 emails every day. So um, this has been a constant uh, question that uh, I've been getting and, and would love your insight on it uh, for the listeners. Yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting. It's, it's not easy. Uh, I think to your point, you know, we, we obviously post, you know, job listings on our website and other venues, but it, it quickly becomes uh, a sea of, of CVs and resumes that it becomes hard to find the, uh, the needle in the haystack. And I think, you know, I've seen everything for, from people sending me like, like tactile uh, resumes in the mail uh, to work <laughs> to people doing stunts um, and um, uh, just to try and grab attention. I like to honestly think, though, that if you're talented um, and your work is good, that if you just cold email me and it's very easy to find my contact information, it's the internet, you know, it's very widely available, um, that uh, I try and res- I actually do try and respond to every um, email that comes through my inbox. It may not happen the next day. It might take a little bit of time. But if there's something uh, in there, uh, in terms of like an honest communication and um, I, I will respond to it. And I know that's not, uh, I'm, I'm not, there's no like secret formula to this, but I really feel that if you, if you want to contact me directly, then please feel free to, to do so. I will try and respond to it. And if your work is great, and if I feel that you are a person uh based even on the email that you send me, that, it, that you are a person that has a pilot light inside of you somehow. And um, I can 
I can tell that you have a, a real passion for what you're doing. Um, I'll, I'll take that into consideration because I'll always take the person who um, feels um, like they will go to the nth degree and are, are passionate and want to do the best work of their lives over pure raw talent on paper. I'll, I'll take that person um, almost every time. So I think a lot of it is just finding a way to express who you are um, and making sure you have a portfolio that, that stands out. And um, I don't think you need to go through all the smoke and mirrors to, and all these tactics. Um, if, if your work is good and, you're, and you're, uh, you're, you're culturally a good fit, you will get a response for me. Yeah. And it almost alludes to the whole personalization as well. When one would write to a uh, decision maker, a creative director or otherwise to um, really find the why and to find the uh, the, the bit that has connected you with that person and, or that company. Um, I'm sure you get a bunch of, um, generic star emails, um, where people start really sounding the same or robot like, as you were saying, um, rather than, um, really storytelling, um, or at least giving some, some background on, on what has, um, drawn um them to you what kind of work that you've done resonates with them i think that's that's really powerful um you know when it comes to even something like a subject line um david is there a subject line that has really caught your attention um or is it more about just um really the first line of the email um you know do you open all your emails so i i don't open every single email and the more that it looks like it's um, a vendor that I don't know or a production company that's trying to get a job. Um, I, I tend to archive those pretty, pretty quickly. I think the subject headers that have really stood out are the, the almost like cryptically minimal <laughs> ones yeah. where uh, you're not trying to like tell your whole story in, in a, in a subject header. And um, those are those tend to be the ones that I'm kind of like just a little bit curious as to uh, who this person is, yeah. Versus the overly uh, descript uh, versions. So, uh, David, a question I ask most of my guests: If you could travel back in time for thirty seconds and speak to junior David Lee, uh, perhaps the David finishing high school, what would you tell him? I'm glad you asked that. I actually think about this uh, quite a bit, and maybe it's because I'm getting older now that I that I actually start to think about this even more. Um, you know what? Like life goes by very, very quick, and it gets much, much quicker uh, as you get older. And you know, I remember when I was a teenager how summers felt like they lasted forever. Days went on and on and on, and it's just not the same anymore. So. You know, I felt like I started at Squarespace a year ago, and then I woke up one day and basically found out that I've almost been here four, <laughs> which was um, probably a good sign. <laughs> mm. You know, I, I felt like my daughter was born six months ago, and she just turned three, and I'm walking her to school um, every morning. Like, that's a pretty weird feeling to have um, when you feel that life is going at such a speed, um, and it's probably because you're you're very busy and it's a really, it's a really weird feeling to have. So, I mean, I think what I would tell myself is that you can spend your entire life 
you know, playing the leading role in someone else's dream. And you can wake up one day realizing that um, you've just woken up from, from a dream and you don't actually have time for, for your own. That for me is a very scary thing that I think about like a lot. You know, you can, another thing that I always have this conversation about with people that I know is that you can also spend your entire life chasing like a monetary goal. And you actually get that a lot in New York City specifically. Mm. And you can also realize that by the time you reach that goal, that you're the richest person in the grave and you haven't found uh, any time to actually enjoy any of those riches. And the bittersweet thing is that you don't usually realize any of this until it's too late. And um, I wish I had someone who could tell me that uh, when I was much younger, but I think life works in very mysterious ways that even if someone told you that, you might not take it um, uh, for what it's worth. And it just might be something that goes through one ear out the other. So I think life is a little bit interesting in, in that way. So, you know, appreciate your youth. Um, spend time trying to do different things. Definitely travel the world before you begin your first career because I have a strange feeling by doing that, you might actually decide that what you thought you were going to do is actually not the thing that you want to do. And um, yeah, be brave. Don't be afraid of failure. I've definitely failed enough in my career and my life. And I think it's made me a better person. And I think don't be scared of a life that that goes up and down because I think that's the reason why uh, you'll get the feeling that you're living. I think it's, it'll be much more interesting than just flatlining it throughout life. Mm, I really love all those things. Uh, when it comes to an impactful giant thinker in your life, David, has there been a person that's perhaps inspired you to think bigger and dig deeper in helping you reach your full potential? I definitely had my fair share of inspirational figures in my life, professors, colleagues, bosses. Um, I think the one that might have played the biggest part without actually knowing is probably my my father. And I think he was probably the most instrumental to um, at least helping me realize uh, the potential of like what life can actually like put in front of you. And he, maybe because, you know, he tells me this story all the time of how he came to, to America with $20 in his pocket. It's a very typical immigrant family thing to say but maybe it was the fact that he hammered that every day and also hammered that you know in order for you to stand out you have to work twice as hard as as anyone else to survive but i think the main thing he did tell me which i actually still think is valid today and is probably the the main thing that actually made me navigate uh uh life so far is that he basically told me this story once and um, continually to tell me this, he basically said, a person, uh, and in my case, I'm going to, a man, <laughs> is really, um, it's, it's a pretty big and vast world, and it's also not so nice. And it's really easy to get uh, lost in the abyss. And in order to navigate it, you constantly have to set goals and flags in the ground and if you don't do that, it's the highway to complacency and it's also the quick way of getting completely lost. And you have to constantly place these flags in the ground. Some of them can be really big, lofty goals that are way off into the distance. But as long as you know where the North Star actually is, you can actually march towards that, 
um, that flag in the ground. And some of them can be really small. It could be something that you want to do today or tomorrow. It could be something that you want to do a month from now or what have you. But make sure you know um, that there's always something that you're working towards. And when you get there, celebrate, pat yourself on the back. The next morning, plant the next one. And it sounds really simple. Sounds really obvious. Yes, make goals. But when you visualize it a certain way and you actually put that into practice, uh, and when you catch yourself kind of like just put like in the same gear for the for a very long time, it's a really good way to um, get yourself out of a rut and to um, look at things through a different lens. And I think it's really been the one piece of advice that has stuck with me over time. And it's probably been the reason why I've gotten here uh, in the first place. So good. Yeah. Your dad uh, uh, sounds like a, uh, someone that um, many uh, of our fathers um, also c- uh, carry and, um, and, and my, I myself um, have come from uh, a uh, background um, Filipino, moved to Sydney, Australia um, when my parents were, were really um, showing how it was like to live off very little and to still be very satisfied, but to, to keep going and, and that vision, the, the goal setting, um, hugely, hugely important. Um, so, uh, thank you for sharing that story, uh, David, uh, what's next for you and everything you're involved in for this year and beyond? Yeah, this, this year has been, it's been crazy. It's been a lot of things happening, but you know, on a personal level, I'm, you know, just trying to be uh, and learn how to be a great father, you know, and a husband to, to my, to my family and constantly being, uh, getting better at that. And I have my own personal goals that I need to, to deal with and things I need to get better in every single day. Um, you know, professionally, my head is obviously with Squarespace and, you know, we just moved into a brand new office right in the heart of New York city in the West village. And we're, you know, plotting and making very strategic chess moves to try and position ourselves to be the best product company that that we can be. You know, we've been focusing on you know trying to democratize good design and good taste for for all, and you know, putting the tools into people's hands so that anyone can have an online presence that they're proud of. But I think the interesting thing for us is that you know we're going to continually evolve and grow, and our product and our platform is going to get better, but. Where we're, the next chapter for us is not just making sure that you have a, like a beautiful online presence, but that you're also successful in achieving your goals. And I think this is going to inform a lot about what we're going to do as a company. And, and um, you know, we're obviously for the creative entrepreneurs uh, out there in the world, and we're going to make sure we're a company that supports them with uh, with the right products and the right tools. Super exciting! Uh, I know many listeners do have Squarespace. Uh, as their uh, platform for uh, their own portfolio. So uh, I'm sure they're eager to know what's coming out. Is there anything that you can share to us that's, uh, that we can get a bit of a taste of? Uh, I wish I could say that. Um, <laughs> someone would probably um, uh, kill me if, if I did. Uh, <laughs> just, just know that uh, every day when we come into work, that um, we are constantly trying to figure out how we can uh, be the best product company and uh, the, the most loved brand in the world. You know, we, I think, uh, you know, when people ask me what we do, it's, I, I don't believe we're selling websites here. You know, we're giving people the ability to go after their passions and their ideas and 
and we're basically a megaphone to be able to put that out into the world. And it's, uh, it's, it's the reason why I can get up in the morning and go to work every single day and, and hold my head up high uh, is, is because of that. And we're going to work on things that, um, that continually try and uh, align to that thinking and hopefully bring it to uh, a different level. Yeah, yeah, totally. So, David, uh, how can listeners get in touch with you online? Yeah, I mean, you're, everyone is uh, free to uh, cold email me. You can, you can go to my website at dmklee.com or follow me on Instagram or Twitter at the same handle. Um, and, um, yeah, I'm curious to, to hear and see things that, uh, that people send my way and, uh, and don't be a stranger. Yeah. Love it. Uh, thank you so much, David, for your time and being generous in sharing your story with us. It's been such a pleasure having you on the show. Uh, and, uh, mate, I wish you all the best for, uh, the future of, um, you know, everything on Squarespace, but also, you know, your personal life and, um, the, uh, ins and outs of fatherhood. Thank you very much and all the best for you as well. Thanks for tuning in, wonderful giants. I really appreciate your time hanging out with David and I on this episode. A little teaser for you with our next guest. He is the Managing Director of Landor Australia. He's had over 20 years experience in marketing, branding, and communications. He started his career in advertising with Clemenger BBDO, then McCann Erickson, where his clients included Unilever, Black & Decker, and Bacardi. We dive deep into topics around leadership and innovation, so stay tuned for that one. Before you race off, I do encourage you to check out freshbooks.com slash giant, especially if you're running a business or freelancing. You know, it wasn't too long ago that working for yourself was kind of looked down upon. There was a stigma that one couldn't get a real job, but that's no longer true. Today, one in three Americans are self-employed. The trend is growing, and by 2020, this group could grow to be over 40% of the US workforce. And millennials are 54 million strong, the largest generational slice of the workforce who change employers every two and a half years. And millennials are more inclined towards self-employment. Perhaps they, or we should I say, grasp the potential and possibility of an always connected world. So check out freshbooks.com slash giant if you're after a cloud-based accounting solution to your business and you'll get 30 days of unrestricted use via that link. Thank you again for your support. If you found this episode useful, I'd be honored if you leave an iTunes review. If you head to giantthinkers.com slash podcast review, it'll take you right there. And do let me know once you have, I'd love to thank you personally. So that's a wrap and from the words of David himself, who reminds us that we can spend our entire life playing the lead role in someone else's dream. So let's be brave and go after all those crazy ideas. Take care and I'll catch you on the next episode. 